Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry that we were unable to find a way to meet together this morning for worship, but I'm so grateful for the technology that allows us to communicate in this way. And I pray this morning that as you meet uh, with your families or perhaps even alone in your homes, or if you um, meet together with your community groups or with some friends or neighbors, I pray that God will bless your time in the Word. I pray that He will speak to you by His wisdom and by His Spirit. And for what He will do, I give Him thanks and praise. If you have a Bible or some kind of electronic device that you're using, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. I want to begin by reading the text before us today, uh, verses 17 through 20, and then I'll offer a brief prayer, and then we'll get into the message for this morning. This is Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. When I, John, saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. Let's pray now that the Lord will give us wisdom as we meditate upon it. Our God and Father, we thank you for who you are and for what you have accomplished for us in Christ. We thank you that even though we're not able to gather in a normal worship service today, that you have seen fit to give us technology so that we can delight in your word together. And I pray that even though this is unusual and less than ideal, I pray that you would work in power um, as I preach this morning here to empty room. I pray that even I myself would be blessed in the preaching. But as people listen to this message in their homes and uh, in their workplaces or wherever else they're going to listen to this message, I pray, O oh God, that you would be greatly glorified and that people would be blessed. I pray that even unbelievers would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And for what you will do in this message and through this message, I give you my thanks and praise in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In these days, we are living in an unprecedented crisis of disease. Of course, in centuries past, we have faced crises of disease that were much worse than this in terms of the death toll. I don't think that COVID-19 will probably take nearly as many lives as certain diseases that human beings have faced in the past. And even in more recent times, even in our own memories, we can remember other crises of disease that were serious. I think of the Ebola crisis. I think of the Zika virus crisis. Um, I think of, uh, what else? There was Y2K. That was more of a threat than a viral crisis, but just seemed like the world was going to come apart. Of course, we all remember 9-11. We've experienced times before where there was sort of a, a worldwide concern and perhaps even a worldwide panic. But I don't think we have ever in our lifetime seen uh, the kind of response that the world is having to the current crisis today. I'm still in a mild state of shock that I'm sitting here preaching to you from the office of Glory of Christ Fellowship in downtown Elk River, specifically because we were forbidden by the school district from gathering together because of COVID-19. It's just hard for me to believe that this 
crisis has progressed that far that fast. I'm not questioning the decisions people have made. I'm just telling you that I'm, I'm just kind of blown away by this. And I don't think that we have ever seen this kind of worldwide response to a crisis before. As we look into the future, it's hard to tell where this pandemic is going to take us and what's going to happen in the coming days and weeks. But whatever the case, what we do know is that many people are filled with fear on the one hand and they're filled with frustration on the other hand. Some people are, are, are afraid of the disease and perhaps even of death. Other people are frustrated with the response or what they might consider the overreaction to a serious but containable crisis. When we look at the root of the fears that people are feeling, I think that at the heart of them, they're really just a fruit of, of the insecurity we have about life and death. Times like this make us feel vulnerable. They don't actually make us more vulnerable. They just expose the fact that we are vulnerable. And people fear because they don't have a depth of security about their life, about their death, and about what's going to happen after their death. When we plumb into the depths of the frustration that some people are feeling, I think that at its root, what's there is pride. And I'll tell you, in my own case, this has been more of my struggle than fear. I haven't been afraid at all. But at times, I have been quite frustrated with the level of response. And at times, what I have considered an, an overreaction, whether I'm right about that, is another issue. But what I'm telling you is, in my heart, I have felt frustration. And I think at, at the end of the day, at the root of that problem, is really pride. It's a heart that, that isn't in control and wants to be in control. It's a heart that doesn't have authority to make certain kinds of decisions and wants the authority to make decisions or at least wants to second guess those who are in places of power and are making the best decisions that they can. The truth is that the school district, our, our mayors, our governors, our presidents, whatever, they're doing the best that they can to respond to something that they don't completely understand themselves and they don't really need us all second guessing them. But in this heart, I have been second guessing. So there's fear on one side, there's frustration on the other. And when we plumb into the depths, what we really see is hearts that are immature, that are sick, that need help, that need the Lord. The timing of Jesus always amazes me. It blows my mind, month after month, year after year, how he matches texts with circumstances in the world. Revelation 1, 17 through 20 has nothing to do with disease. It has nothing to do with pandemics. It has nothing to do with the fear and frustration that we feel in response to such crises. But then again, it has everything to do with these things. This text is about the fear and comfort of the Lord. And the fear and comfort of the Lord powerfully speaks to the fear that people feel in their hearts and the frustration people feel in their hearts today. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through this text with you without much regard at all to the current crisis. I just want to climb into God's revelation and into John's world and see what we can see there. And then at the end of the message, we'll take just a few minutes to begin to apply it. Having said that, I'm going to leave most of the application to you. I'm going to leave most of the, the, uh, the, the burden on you to talk about how this text relates to the current crisis in our world and in our hearts, but I will say a few things to get the ball rolling. So with that, let's just climb into the text and see what the Lord has to teach us today. I promise you that if we'll listen carefully and humble ourselves before the Lord, he will powerfully speak to us today. As we have been seeing over the last couple of weeks, John was exiled on the island of Patmos. It was a little island. It's still there today, uh, still called Patmos today, right off the southwestern shores of modern-day Turkey. But in those days, the Roman Empire used it as a sort of Alcatraz, as a sort of prison. 
John had been preaching the gospel by teaching the word of God, and he apparently had been pretty successful at it because the government saw him as a threat. So they arrested him, they tried to kill him, they failed with that, and so they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And when he was there, his life was hard, but on Sundays, he would take the time to worship the Lord on what he called, and what Christians in that day called, the Lord's Day. On some particular Lord's Day, as John was worshiping, he said that he was in the Spirit. And this doesn't mean that he just felt particularly spiritual. What it means is that he was somehow transported by the Holy Spirit into a heightened state of spirituality so that he had eyes to see things that he could not otherwise see. I'm not saying that he was in an altered state of consciousness. What I'm saying is that he was in a heightened state. He was like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, whose eyes were suddenly opened to see the throne room of heaven and to see the glory of Christ seated there at the right hand of God. That's what I'm saying. By the power of the Spirit, John's eyes were opened to things that in his flesh he would never be able to see. And when his eyes were opened, he heard behind him a very loud voice that he said sounded like a trumpet. It gripped his heart. It captured all of his attention. And all he heard the voice saying was, John, well, it didn't say John. It just said, write the things that you see in a book and send it to seven churches in Asia Minor. And the churches were listed there. When John heard the voice... He was completely captivated, and after a few moments, he turned around to see the voice that was speaking to him, and when he turned, he saw a stunning vision. First thing that dawned on his eyes was that he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of those lampstands, he saw one that looked like a son of man. In other words, it was just someone who looked like a human being that he consciously knew was a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he gazed upon this manifest vision of the glory of Christ, he noticed a number of things. He saw that Jesus had exceedingly white hair, white like wool, white like snow. He saw that Jesus had eyes that were like a flame of fire, that were living, penetrating eyes. He saw that Jesus had feet that were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, solid and immovable. He heard that Jesus had a voice that was like the roar of many waters. It was powerful and gripping. He saw that in his right hand, Jesus held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which is the word of God. And he saw that the face of Jesus was shining like the sun in all of its strength, in all of its ability. Jesus was manifesting the glory of God, and he was holding nothing back at all. This powerful, visual revelation of the glory of Christ helped John see in an instant just how great Jesus is, and how relatively insignificant all other persons and things are in comparison to him. And when John saw this, he was absolutely filled with the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord does have to do with awe. We often talk about it like that. That the fear of the Lord is just awe at the glory of God, and that's true. But the fear of the Lord also, and especially in cases like this, when people see the manifest glory of God, has also to do with the kind of fear that causes a person's body to tremble. It has to do with literal fear, soul-gripping, body-shaking fear. And this is what John was feeling. He was not just feeling the inspiration, inspiration of awe. He was feeling the kind of fear that would cause a person to shake and tremble, to be scared out of their minds, we might say. For this reason... John fell to the feet of Jesus, not as a person who desired to worship him, but as a person who thought that he was about to die at the hand of an exceedingly great God. 
His experience was much like Job and Moses and Joshua and Ezekiel and Daniel and others who went before him, people who saw the manifest glory of God and felt undone, felt like they were in great trouble, felt like that they were in deadly peril. And while it's important for us to talk about the uh, things that transpired after John had this kind of feeling and had this experience of falling like a dead man at Jesus' feet, it's also important for us to, to pause here for a little bit and take this in. Because we too, like John, like Moses, like Ezekiel, like Daniel, we need to enter into and feel the soul-gripping fear of the Lord. That is the key to so many things, including facing crises like COVID-19 with wisdom and with peace and with strength. Beloved, life begins when we are confronted by the greatness of God. And until we are truly confronted by the gravity of the greatness of God, I don't think it's possible for us to enter into a true relationship with God. Because until we see the magnitude of who he is, we're not truly worshiping him as who he is. We're worshiping him as some sort of lesser being that in one way, shape, or form we have concocted in our own minds, but we're not worshiping God. We must first be confronted by the greatness of God and filled with the fear of the Lord. True life begins there, which is why the Bible says a number of things like this. I'm now just going to quote for you four or five um, verses. Most come from Proverbs. But let's begin with Job 28.28. Here's what Job himself said. And he, the Lord, says to man, to all human beings, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Then there's Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? It's the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. Then there is the famous Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 14.26 In the fear of the Lord, a person has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Proverbs 14.27 The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. And finally, Proverbs 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. That doesn't mean that bad things can't or won't happen to him or to her. It just means that they will not ultimately be harmed by things that are harmful. The fear of the Lord, beloved, is so much the key of life. And the primary problem with human beings is that we do not fear the Lord. We do not have a sense of the gravity of his greatness. We do not tremble at his presence. We do not understand the the weight and the seriousness of his words, of his will, of his ways. And so we turn to lesser things. We turn away from him. We become amazed with lesser glories. We become uh, pulled away by our own desires, our, our, our own passions, our own wants, our own perception of our needs or what have you. And we walk away from God. We give up the fear of the Lord in the pursuit of many things. And when we give up the fear of the Lord, something very ironic happens. Namely, we come under the wrath of God, which is something we really ought to fear. In trying to get out from under the fear of the Lord, we enter into the fear of the Lord that will undo us. 
You see, when we rebel against God, God has to take this seriously because he is infinitely great and infinitely glorious. And when we rebel against him, we rebel against all that he is. And as a God who is holy and righteous and true and just and faithful to his words and his will and his ways and the essence of his being, he simply must oppose all who oppose him. He must vindicate his glory. So when we offend the glory of God, we come underneath the rightful wrath of God. When we try to put off the fear of the Lord, we come under his hot anger toward our sin, which is something we really ought to fear. Ironic, isn't it? We try to escape the fear of the Lord, and we end up coming into a place where we really have legitimate things to fear, not only for a short time, but for eternity. Now, praise be to God, God has made a way for us to be shielded from his wrath. And that's a way that we could never concoct in ourselves, that we could never manufacture by ourselves. Specifically, God sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world so that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. Even if we get a disease and die, we will have everlasting life. Jesus came into this world to live a perfectly righteous, obedient life before God the Father, always submitting to his will and ways from the heart, so that when we believe in him, his perfect righteous record gets counted toward us like we were the ones who always obeyed. Jesus Christ subjected himself to a horrible trial and conviction and death on a cross, so that he would pay the penalty for all of our offenses against God. He in himself absorbed all the wrath of God that we deserve, so that when we put our faith in him, our sins are removed, and all the wrath we deserve is transferred to Jesus Christ. And we'll have no more wrath to bear. We have nothing to fear of God in that sense of the word fear. Jesus Christ, having died and been buried in a grave, was then raised from the dead on the third day, to show his great power over death so that now when we put our faith in him, we not only believe in a person who is able to raise himself from the dead, but we become united with him so that death is not the final word in our lives. I'll tell you the main reason I don't fear COVID-19 is because even if it kills me, I will live again. And this doesn't make me flippant. This doesn't make me want to just go into a room where I'm likely to catch the disease. It doesn't make a person foolish or unwise. It just means that ultimately I have nothing to fear. Because by faith, I am united with the God who raised himself from the dead and promised to raise everyone who also puts faith in him unto eternal life. The truth of the matter is that everyone will be resurrected from the dead, but some to judgment, some to eternal hope and peace and joy in Christ. And the difference between the two is simply this. Have we put our faith in Jesus? God says, you want to come out from under my wrath, put your faith in my son. Believe in the one who was perfectly righteous for you, who died a death for you, who was buried for you, who was raised from the dead for you. And when you do that, you will come into eternal life. And ultimately speaking, you will have nothing to fear. Now, the thing about that is, though, once we come out from under that kind of fear of the Lord, we're then taught how to live by the rightful fear of the Lord. And we're taught how to live by the fear of the Lord, by Jesus Christ himself, who delighted in the fear of the Lord. Okay, here's what Isaiah said about Jesus more than 900 years, or about 900 years before he even walked the earth. Here's what Isaiah said about him. The Lord prophesying about Jesus through the prophet. Here's what was said. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, that is Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and guess what else? 
the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be, his delight, his passion, his joy shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus will delight to see the greatness of God and subject himself to all the fullness of the greatness of God. He will not rebel against the Father. He will not buck against his authority. He will gladly submit his life to the one who is great, who is gracious, who is mighty, who is merciful. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And when we put our faith in him and we're united with him by simple belief, then he teaches us how to delight in the rightful fear of the Lord as well. He teaches us how to see the glory of God, how to value the glory of God, and how to live all of our lives in the light of the glory of God. This is what it means to fear the Lord. Beloved, learning to live in the fear of the Lord takes time, but it's something that Jesus must do and that he will do in our lives. Having said that, though, there are levels. There are new um, heights, new depths, new widths, new breadths of entering into the fear of the Lord. And sometimes when God gives us an assignment, he has to help us grow in the fear of the Lord so that we're fit for this assignment. And that's what happened to John. By the time he landed on Patmos, John already knew something about the fear of the Lord in very specific ways. John had seen with his eyes the power of Jesus Christ over demons. John watched Jesus cast demons out of human beings. He saw this happen. He heard Jesus' voice. He saw his power. He saw the whole thing. We have to read the stories and believe them by faith. John saw it with his eyes. John was there when Jesus spoke and the wind and waves calmed down in response to his words. Unbelievable. He saw the manifest power of Jesus. John saw and heard the authority of the teaching of Jesus that saved people's lives and defeated his enemies, that silenced people who were trying to kill him. John saw the power of the humility of a man who would subject himself to unjust arrest and trial and conviction and death. He saw it all with his eyes. John was converted inside the tomb where Jesus was raised from the dead. Think about that. John was one of the very first ones present at the place where Jesus uh, exercised his resurrection power over his own body. That's where he was converted. And not long after that, he saw the resurrected Christ. And he saw Jesus Christ do things as the resurrected Christ that were just mind-blowing and unbelievable. Trust me, that caused John to fear. It caused him to fear. I forgot one thing. John was also one of only three people present on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a place and showed them his manifest glory, even if it was just a glimpse for a second. And there standing by Jesus were Moses and Elijah. And now he's standing by the Sea of Galilee and in other places with the resurrected Jesus, watching him exercise his power. Beloved, John had felt the fear of the Lord in his heart. He was there on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and empowered them to boldly preach the gospel so that thousands were saved. He was there in Acts chapter 4 when they prayed again and received fresh, building-shaking power to preach the gospel of Jesus in the world so that more and more people were saved. He was there in the coming days to watch Jesus exercise his power over his church to, come, to overcome crises inside the church and outside the church so that the gospel kept going into the world and prospering in the world. John personally felt the power, the sustaining power of Christ helping him to preach the gospel and to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ even while he was on the island of Patmos. John knew something about the fear of the Lord. He was not a beginner at all. 
In fact, by this time of his life, he was probably one of those in the earth that was the most advanced in the fear of the Lord, if you will. But there was a new level for him. When he saw the vision that's contained for us in Revelation 1, 12 to 16, he was struck with a depth of fear of the Lord that he had never experienced before. And never before, I can't think of a single time in all of John's experiences where anything close to this happened to him. Never before had he planted his face to the ground before the feet of Jesus in trembling fear like he was about to be killed. Again, he did not fall to the feet of Jesus like a man who wanted to honor Christ and worship him in that moment. He fell to the feet of Jesus with the fear of a man who felt that he was about to be killed. And I think that that kind of fear is not just something that John was meant to feel, but it's something that through John, all the people of God are meant to feel. We need to come into touch, into a vision of the reality of just how great Jesus is so that we are filled with the fear of the Lord. We need to meditate upon his hair and his eyes and his feet and his powerful voice. We need to meditate on the stars in his hand and the sword coming out of his mouth and his bright shining face until we feel like we want to join John on the ground in trembling fear. We will probably never enter into the depth of what John saw and what John felt, but beloved, what I'm trying to say is that John wrote these things down at the command of Jesus because we too are supposed to enter into them. Revelation is not given for us just to analyze it. It's not given to us just to stimulate our curiosity and to stimulate all kinds of theological conversation. As I've been saying over the last few sermons, Revelation is not a theological playground for the people of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ is meant to profoundly affect us. It's supposed to grip us. So much so that I would say this, if you do not feel gripped by the power of the vision of the glory of Christ in chapter 1, you cannot understand the rest of Revelation. This revelation is not just a sort of an optional add-on at the beginning of the book. It is absolutely essential to everything that comes after it. And until you're gripped by the power of the glory of Christ, you will never understand what comes after it. And so I pray with all of my heart, that we will meditate on the details of what John saw until we feel that sort of heart-trembling fear that causes us to want to join him at the feet of Jesus as a dead man, not necessarily as a worshiper, but as a dead man or as a dead woman who is filled with the kind of literal fear of the Lord. Now, while the fear of the Lord, even the literal physical fear of the Lord, is the beginning of so many things, it is not the end, and praise be to God for that. Jesus was pleased to reveal his glory so that John was driven to the ground by what he saw, but Jesus was not pleased to leave John in that place because more had to be shown, more had to be revealed, more had to be said. Fear is the beginning, but beloved, it is not the end. So without dimming the magnificence of his glorious presence even one small degree, Jesus, when he saw John there on the ground, approached him took his most powerful right hand and laid it upon John. And while that act could have caused John to feel an even greater fear, I think there's something very soothing about an exceedingly strong hand that puts itself on our shoulder or on our head or wherever Jesus put his hand. Isn't there just something about that? When someone with great strength touches us in a certain way, we just feel filled with the comfort of their strength. 
It's not like their strength gets put off to the side. It's actually something about their strength that makes us feel great comfort. And I think that's what John felt. But in addition to the physical touch that Jesus granted to John, he also added words. And these words are what truly brought the depth of the comfort of the Lord into John's life as well. Jesus started with two amazing words. He just said to John, fear not. You're so afraid right now that you're literally physically trembling at my feet. And here's what I have to say to you, John. Fear not. John had heard Jesus say words like this before. There was a day that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 12, um, verses 4 through 7, where Jesus was telling his disciples that they should not fear those who could kill their bodies, but that they should fear God, who having taken their physical lives could then also cast people into heaven or into hell. They should fear the one who has all ultimate authority over all persons and things in heaven and on earth. Yes, Jesus said, I tell you, fear him. But then he said to them, don't fear him because you're of more value than many sparrows. He's for you. He's not against you. So fear God and don't fear God. He had already taught his disciples this, and I think in many ways this is what Jesus was teaching John now. Jesus was not reversing the power of his glory that he had just revealed. He was not telling John not to fear him. He was not rebuking God or John for trembling at his feet. He was instead saying, John, While you're there trembling in fear, you also need to feel the power of the comfort of my right hand because I am for you and I am not against you. And because you have become one with me by faith, you have entered into the rightful fear of the Lord and yet ironically at the same time, oh my beloved son John, you have nothing to fear. Oh beloved, how great and glorious is the grace of Jesus Christ that is so mighty and so merciful so great and so gracious, so powerful and so peaceful, so strong and so sanctifying, so high and so humble. It is when we see the manifest glory of Christ in both of these ways at the same time that we begin really grasping the fullness of who he is, the the highness of who he is and the humbleness of who he is, the greatness and the grace, the power and the peace, the strength and the sanctifying heart that's inside of him, the sanctifying desires that are in him, that he's for us and not against us. And how I encourage you to meditate on both of these things. See his manifest glory and feel the comfort of his hand, because it is in the fear and comfort of the Lord that I think his glory is most fully revealed. Now I want to draw your attention to something. Something struck me the other day as I was meditating on these things, something that's really stuck with me and that I want to pass on to you now. Please notice with me that when Jesus caused John to fear him and then wanted to comfort him, he did not turn the focus from himself onto John and comfort John with things that were true about himself. Jesus did not tell John that he is loved with an everlasting love, even though that's true. Jesus did not put his hand upon John and remind him that he had been adopted and that he would never be unadopted, that he would never be kicked out of the family, that no one could ever peel back the fingers of God and snatch John out of God's strong hands, even though all that's true. Jesus did not put his hand on John and remind him that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, that he ultimately had nothing to fear of God, even though that's true. Jesus did not turn the focus of the attention 
from himself to John in order to comfort John. Rather, Jesus kept the fullness of the attention on himself, and he said a few more things that had to do with himself that revealed to John that as great as he is, he is for John and not against John. That revealed to John that as great as he is, Jesus is for all of his people, and he's not against any of his people. Specifically, here's what Jesus said. He put his strong right hand on John and said, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. I died on a cross. I was buried in a grave. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And, just one more little thing, I have the keys of death and Hades. This is what Jesus not only thought but knew would be profoundly comforting to John. Not to turn the attention on John, but to keep the attention focused on himself. When Jesus says that he's the first and the last, he's saying on the one hand that he was there in the beginning. That he was with God because he was God, and he was God because he is God. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, but he's so much more. He is the great God-man in all fullness. And because he was there in the beginning, this means that Jesus Christ is ultimately responsible for creation. God the Father created all things through him. Everything in heaven was created by the will and power of Jesus Christ. Everything in the universe was created by the will and power of Jesus Christ. Everything on this earth was created by the will and power of Jesus Christ. And if he who has that kind of power is for us, what ultimately do we have to fear? Tell me, what ultimately do we have to fear? When he says that he's the last, he means that he is going to be there at the end to bring all things to their appointed consummation and that he will be the one to render the judgment of God for all persons and things. And whatever he says will be final, irreversible, and inescapable. If one who has that kind of authority is for us and not against us, then what have we to fear? Ultimately, if we fear the Lord, what other fear is there left for us to feel? And because he's the first and the last, obviously this means that he's superintending everything in between. As he said in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the God who is Lord. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. I am Hapontokrator. I am the one with all things in my grasp. I am the absolute sovereign. I have all power over everything. And if I have all power over everything and I am for you, then ultimately you have nothing to fear. Welcome to the fear and comfort of the Lord. This is what Jesus was trying to say to John. Additionally, he told John, I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. In other words, he's reminding John and reminding all of us that he had the power to raise himself from death. He overcame the final enemy of human beings, which is death itself. And at a time like this in our culture and in our hearts, if we don't have to fear death, then tell me, what have we to fear? We have nothing left to fear. As I said last week, or perhaps the week before, I don't remember which now, there is a sense in which Jesus was not the firstborn from the dead because others were raised from the dead before him. There's the story in the Old Testament of Elijah uh, raising a young man from death through the power of God. There's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead through the power of God. But both that young man and Lazarus, although they were raised from the dead, they were not raised by their own native power, but they were raised by the power of God. And even though they were raised from death, they actually died again on the earth so that they, along with all of us, could face the final judgment in that final day. 
Jesus Christ is not like them. First of all, when he was buried in that grave, he on the third day was raised from death by his own native power. He said in John 10, 17, and 18 that he has all authority to lay down his life by the will of God, and he has all authority to take up his life again by the will and authority of God. He said that he is pleasing to the Father because he freely gave his life to be killed, and he freely exercised his power to overcome death. So Jesus Christ was the first one and the last one to raise himself from death by his own native power, at the command of God. This puts it in an utterly unique place. And because he raised from death as the one who has power over life and death, he lives forevermore. He's not like Lazarus who died again. Jesus did not die again and he will never die again. He is the one who lives forevermore. And if we have been united by faith to the one who lives forevermore, then guess what? We are going to live forevermore. Death cannot possibly be the final word in any of our lives because we have been united with him who is the Lord of life. This is why he added this little powerful clause. Oh, by the way, John, I also have the keys of death in Hades. Now we'll talk another time about exactly what Hades means. It basically just means the resting place of the dead. We have things we need to learn about that, but we'll leave that to another time. Right now, the most important word in that little clause is the word key, not the word death and not the word Hades. Or keys, plural. He has the keys to death and Hades, meaning he has all authority over these things. And if the one who has all authority over death and everything that's involved in death has us in his grasp, then, beloved, what have we to fear? You see, Jesus is trying to comfort John with things that are truly comforting. It would not ultimately be helpful for Jesus to put the focus on John and just try to affirm him, even with things that are true. What was going to ultimately give John comfort and what will ultimately give us comfort right now is for Jesus to retain the attention on himself and to tell us things that are ultimately true of himself for us. And if the things that he said are for us and not against us, then we have nothing to fear and we have everything in this world to hope. Beloved, if this God is for us, what could possibly stand against us? Can COVID-19 ultimately stand against us? No, it cannot. Can all the chaos in this world stand against us? Ultimately, it cannot. Can fear and frustration ultimately stand against us? Ultimately, it cannot. John fell to the feet of Jesus as a dead man because of the power of the glory of the vision that he saw. And John was revived at the feet of Jesus as a living man by the power of the comfort that Jesus spoke into his life. And that comfort was a result of retaining the attention on himself and helping John to see even further aspects of himself. And beloved, we have so much to learn from this combination. We have so much to learn here. You see, to know Jesus truly, to know him, is to experience the soul-gripping awe of the power of his glory and to know Jesus is to experience the soul-gripping peace of the depth of his grace in our lives. To know Jesus Christ is to live by the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Lord, both things. As we learn to live by the fear and comfort of the Lord, we learn to truly live. As we learn to live by the fear and comfort of the Lord, we come to bear true and lasting fruit. Our lives have meaning. They have purpose. 
They have value. As we come to learn to live by the fear and comfort of the Lord, then we come to know the profound peace of the Lord that passes understanding. So that as believers, we can face cultural moments like this with a kind of uh, stability and calmness that causes people around us to just say, like, what's wrong with you? How could you possibly be feeling like this in the midst of such a great storm? How could you have such a, a, a clear mind about this and such a, a, a heart that's free from anxiety and other types of soul-gripping emotions? How? And we simply say, I have been taught by the grace of God in Christ to live in the fear and comfort of the Lord. That's it. Jesus Christ himself is the stabilizing force over our hearts. Jesus Christ himself is the stabilizing force over our times. And as we enter into the fear and comfort of the Lord, we will learn these things in great depth. So, beloved, we need to carefully and prayerfully meditate on the vision of the glory of Jesus that John saw and reported to us in verses 12 to 16 until we feel the soul-trembling fear of who Jesus is. And we need to humbly and joyfully receive the comforting hand of Christ upon us, even as John did, so that we'll feel the power of the comfort of the Lord as well. As we feel the fear and comfort of the Lord, we will be free. This is the key to freedom, to contentment, to true peace. It's to live by the fear and comfort of the Lord. May the Lord give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and a heart to walk in these things. Having filled his heart with the fear and comfort of the Lord, Jesus then commanded John again in verse 19 and told him, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. In one sense, Jesus is just repeating what he already said in verse 11. But in another sense, what he's saying to John is, Listen, I have now prepared you for the task that I gave to you. Jesus had given John a a really a, a stunning assignment to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ to write it in a book and to send it to the churches, not only to seven in his time, but by extension to all churches in all places at all times. That is a stunning assignment to give a person. John was not worthy of that assignment. And so the Lord brought him into new depths of the fear and comfort of the Lord so that he would be ready for that assignment. And now that John was prepared, Now that he had fallen at the feet of Jesus and received the comfort of Jesus, he was ready to get up off of that ground and do what Jesus had called him to do. And in a sense, that's what what Jesus is saying. John, you've now understood the things I need you to understand, so get up. It's time to go to work. I gave you an assignment. Let's get up and do that assignment. And with that in mind, Jesus just immediately began revealing things to John so that he'd have something to write down right away. Jesus said, as for the mystery of the stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Now in the past few sermons, I've already said a few things about the lampstands and the churches and we're going to say a lot more about those in the coming weeks as we get into Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So I'm just going to leave that alone for now. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches seven that were in seven particular cities of Asia Minor, but which also symbolically stand for the the whole church around the world and and across time. But I want to focus this morning our attention on the stars that were in Jesus' hands, which he says are the angels of the seven churches. Now, in some ways it's really helpful that Jesus interpreted the symbolism for us, but in some ways it leaves us with an open question, namely, What does it mean to say that these stars are the angels of the seven churches? Who are these angels exactly? 
And the main confusion and debate comes in because in, in Greek, the word angel can refer to heavenly beings, and that's what we're used to using the word to mean. But in Greek, it can also just refer to human messengers. So, for example, when, the, uh, when John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus to, to ask him some questions and to bring back Jesus' response to John, the Bible actually uses the word angels. That John the Baptist sent angeloi. He sent angels, messengers, to Jesus to find some things out and to report those things to John. And I could give you other examples. There are times when the word angels is talking about human messengers. And so because of that, there are a number of people who think that the seven angels of the seven churches are either talking about the pastors of the churches or the main leaders of the churches or a messenger who was given uh, to the church or who had a role in the church to gain information and to pass that information on to the churches. Perhaps the one who would receive the book of Revelation and read it to the church. Maybe that's the messenger. It is possible that Jesus is referring to human messengers here. For many years, that was the position that I held, but I've, I've changed my mind about this. And the main reason that I've changed my mind is because of the use of the word angels throughout the book of Revelation. I actually have a number of other reasons and if you're interested in that, I can send you a quick overview of what those reasons are. But the main reason is this. The word angel or angels is used 75 times in the book of Revelation. Before chapter 1, verse 20, it clearly refers to heavenly beings, like in verses 1 to 3. When it says that Jesus made known this revelation by sending his angel to John, he's clearly talking about a heavenly being and not a human being. And then after chapter 3, all of the references to angels from there forward are clearly referring to heavenly beings. So to me, just to be consistent in the understanding of a word in a particular book, it just makes most sense to, to, to interpret the word the same way. It doesn't make a lot of sense for me to, to think that it was used one way before uh, chapter 1, verse 20, and then a different way from 120 to the end of chapter 3, and then back to the original way from chapter 4 to chapter 22. That just doesn't make sense to me. I think it's a lot more consistent just to think that Jesus is now and still speaking about heavenly beings when he talks about the angels given to the seven churches. This idea is in keeping with what the author of Hebrews taught us about the overall function of angels. Here's what he wrote. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's the function of angels. In other words, he's asking, are not the heavenly beings we, called, we call angels, are they not sent out by God to serve those to serve with and for the people of God as we enter deeper into the purposes, promises, and plans of God. Are angels not given to us as authoritative beings to help us come into the fullness of what God has called us to be? Answer to the question, yes, that's exactly what they're called to do. Angels are our fellow servants given to us to help us come into the fullness of the things of God. Why does God give us heavenly beings to help us? You'll have to ask him. He's a great God. He's a gracious God. He has created heavenly forces. He has authorized them. He has marshaled them for our good in the world. And that's their function in the world. This is why the angel that worked with John twice said to him, you remember, John was so amazed by the glory of the angel himself that he bowed to his feet two times to worship him. And the angel rebuked him and said, you need to stop that. 
because I am just your fellow servant, and I am the fellow servant of your brothers and sisters who keep the testimony of Jesus Christ. So don't worship me. I'm one of you. I am a fellow servant along with you, helping you come into the fullness of the promises and plans of God. So we can talk about this in the coming weeks, and if you don't agree with me about this, it's okay. I'm more than happy to talk about it, and I may even change my mind again. But for now, I'm going to proceed as though we're talking about heavenly beings that are given to the church to help us. And that there are seven angels given to seven churches doesn't imply that every single local church has a guardian angel. I think it just means that the fullness of the uh, of the heavenly forces and all the authority that they have is given to the fullness of the church to bring us into the fullness of the purposes, promises, and plans of God. So we don't need to get caught up in, do we have a guardian angel or any of that? None of that is really important. If that was important, God would have been real clear about that. All we need to know is that the forces of heaven are for us and not against us. And if all of God's power and all of God's forces are for us, beloved, what do we have to fear? Isn't this an amazing opportunity as the church of Jesus Christ in the world to just say, look, people, we're not afraid, and here's why we're not afraid. We might even die, but we're not afraid because we're filled with the fear and comfort of the Lord, and we have all the armies of heaven working for us and not against us, simply because we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is a snapshot of Revelation 1, 17 through 20. And oh, what a glorious text it is. As I said at the beginning of this message, this text does not have to do with disease or with the emotions that we face in uh, response to disease or in response to the world's response to the disease. It does not directly have to do with these things. And yet it has to do with the fear and comfort of the Lord. And therefore, it has everything to do with these things, does it not? And so in closing here, I just want to pose a question to you. I'm going to give a brief response, but mainly I want to leave it to you to think about this question. If you're alone, I want to encourage you to journal about this. If you're with your family, I want to encourage you guys to openly pray and talk about this question. If you're meeting with your community group this morning or this evening or whenever you're meeting, I want to also encourage you to pray and and talk about this as a group. And here's the simple question that I have. How does this text speak into the current crisis we're facing in the world and in our hearts? How does Revelation 117 through 20 speak into the current crisis that we're facing in the world and in our hearts? Let me just give you a couple things to sort of start the ball rolling, but then I'm going to leave it with you. When we live in the fear and comfort of the Lord, we have no need to fear anyone or anything else because ultimately God is for us and not against us. As Ed Welsh said long ago in the book that he wrote, he said, when God is big, everything else gets real small. And so if we live in the fear and comfort of the Lord, we just have nothing left to fear. And that ultimately doesn't mean we don't feel fear, but we don't have to live by that fear. And we don't have to keep living even with that fear. We can enter deeper into the fear of the Lord. When we live by the fear and comfort of the Lord, it addresses our frustrations as well. Because we come to terms with the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who's on the throne and not us. Jesus Christ is the one who appoints presidents and prime ministers and governors of states and mayors of cities and people who are over school districts and make decisions that impact little churches like Glory of Christ Fellowship. He's the one in control of all that and not us. So we can just let control, let go of our desire for control and be free. And like I said earlier, this doesn't mean that we don't have opinions about things or that we don't humbly express our opinions about things. But oh, does it ever change the way we formulate and express those opinions? 
Because when we're truly feared, uh, filled with the fear and humility, the comfort of the Lord, then we're also uh, filled with a humility that impacts how we think about things and how we express our thoughts about things. When we are filled with the fear and the comfort of the Lord, we become more motivated to be wise in our thoughts and in our actions. In other words, when we're filled with the fear and comfort of the Lord, we don't become foolish people. We don't begin doing things that just sort of tempt fate, if you will. We become wise actors. Like Joseph in the land of Egypt, we gain great wisdom for the things that ought to be done in the time of crisis, not only for ourselves, but for our city and for the world. And so we get filled with the actual wisdom of God. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Often, it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of very good things, so remember that. When we're filled with the fear and the comfort of the Lord, we become deeply motivated to live lives that are characterized by worship, community, and mission because we simply will not let anything within or without stop us from doing the things that God has called us to do. I want to be careful in my thinking and my actions in these days, but I'm not going to let this disease keep me from worshiping my God alone and with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not going to allow this disease to keep me from loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, even if it means that I have to touch some by faith, even the way that Jesus Christ touched lepers. I'm not going to allow this disease to keep me from having a passion for unbelievers, and especially those who are closest to me, who need to hear about the beauty of Jesus Christ and who need to enter into the power of the fear and the comfort of the Lord. I'm not going to let this disease keep me from loving the least of these, who need people like us who have true hope to come and just minister to their practical needs. There are some people I've learned about, even in our city, who have been officially quarantined put on lockdown. They're not allowed to leave the homes in which they're living. Nobody's allowed to come into the homes in which they're living unless there are already workers there or approved personnel there. And they need people like us to love them, to pray for them, to do anything that we can to serve them. And as God opens up doors, beloved, when we're living in the fear and comfort of the Lord, we're just free. We're free to offer our bodies to be of use to whoever needs our bodies to be of use to them. So much more could be said. I could give a whole message in response to this question, and some of you could do the same. There's a lot that we could say, but I'm going to leave it at that. I kind of got the ball rolling there for you, and now I just want to leave it to you to discuss this. How does Revelation 1, 17 to 20 speak into the current crisis that we're facing in the world and inside of our hearts? How does the fear and comfort of the Lord inform our response to these things? I pray that God will help you. If you think and pray and discuss these things, and I pray that God will greatly bless you as he glorifies his name in your sight and fills you with the fear of him and the comfort of him. Let me pray for us now. Our God and Father, this is much less than an ideal situation for a time of worship on a Sunday morning, on a Lord's Day, and yet we're grateful for the technology that allows us to communicate in this way. We're grateful that so many churches around this country and around this world are still able to meet in some way, shape, or form, even though they're not able to meet. And we thank you that you're in absolute control of the COVID-19 crisis because you are in absolute control of all things. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the God who is Lord. You are the one who is and who was and who is to come. You are the absolute sovereign over all things, and we thank you and praise you for this. Oh God, as we discuss these things and pray about these things together with our families and with our community groups and with our friends and with our neighbors, 
I pray that you would bless us and keep us and make your face to shine upon us. I pray that you would help us understand more about the fear and comfort of the Lord so that we'll have nothing else left to fear. In the mighty and merciful and matchless name of Jesus Christ, I pray these things. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance over you and give you hope and peace and joy both now and forevermore. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of his name, for the joy and peace of your souls, and for the blessing of your neighborhood and for the nations. God be with you all.